Welcome to Now We Listen, a podcast celebrating traditionally underrepresented performers, scholars, and research topics in early music and historically informed performance. I'm Thomas Carroll. Now We Listen is curated and produced by members of Early Music America's IDEA Task Force. It is the only early music podcast written and hosted by diverse individuals in the historically informed performance community. One further aim of the podcast is to highlight performances or texts that seek to deconstruct cultural and personal biases within a wide range of communities. In today's episode, Confronting the Establishment, African-American oboist and principal oboe of the Nashville Symphony, Titus Underwood, will discuss with us historically ingrained biases and prejudices when hiring and managing orchestras which have largely grown out of a place of extreme discriminatory privilege. We will also examine Matthew Morrison's article, Race, Black Sound, and the Remaking of Musical Discourse. Titus, welcome. We're very glad to have you with us here today. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Before we dive in, can you give us just a brief history of your musical background? Sure, sure. So I had kind of a crazy musical background. I grew up Pensacola, Florida, youngest of six kids, pastors, child. So I grew up in like gospel music, heavily in church music. Also grew up a lot of hip hop, jazz. We went to a local symphony, so orchestra music. Me and my brothers formed the rap group, so we was rapping too. I mean, everybody's rapping those days. And I started oboe when I was 10 or 11. My older sister introduced me to it. She played violin and she introduced me to the oboe. Then I went on to uh, Cleveland Institute of Music for my undergrad. I went to Juilliard for my master's, went to the Coburn School for an AD and a bunch of other stuff in between. I had a stop in Rice for a year, also Lynn University for a year with a bunch of stuff in between that was job and career related. So that's pretty much the simple distilled version of my musical background. And so you said your sister introduced you to the oboe. Was that in the public school system? Yes, I did. Uh, get my oboe in public school. So it was a school instrument. She was also in the public school system, but then she was later homeschooled. And I was later homeschooled in high school uh, because the homeschool band association was a lot more robust and developed than the, the public school situation. You know, so I was in homeschool and also dual enrolled in college. So I went to college classes and I also did like homeschool association with the band that was there. And it was, it was really, really great. So uh, I started out in public school music education, for sure. I feel like that's one of the the more sort of unique background stories that I've heard from a woodwind player who's now a, a symphony orchestra musician. I mean, a lot of the people that I've talked to in the past, it's, you know, you get introduced in elementary school band, you go through the middle school and the high school program, maybe you do youth symphony as a secondary thing along the way, but you're still generally in the public school or in private school, depending on on what the educational background is until you sort of get to conservatory. But it sounds like you were already kind of getting geared into pursuing a professional career or, or to really start taking it seriously from a really young age. Right, right. My parents put me in like music lessons and all these things young because they had already done that with my other siblings. Like all of us took private lessons no matter what we played. My brother right next to me played electric bass. He took private lessons. Um, My brother played drums. He took private lessons. So private lessons was part of knowing we had to get better at our craft. 
And also I come from a musical family. So like they knew what it took to like really get good at what you need to do. But I would say that I didn't take the my career in music. I mean, now being principal of Nashville Symphony, and I also teach, I'm associate professor at Cincinnati Conservatory. Mm-hmm. I didn't really take the career, like I want to do this for a living until the end of my sophomore year in conservatory. So I knew the pathway, but I didn't know what the field entailed. Like I didn't know that you had to audition for a symphony orchestra or anything like that. Like some kids who go to Interlock and already know like what the pathway is. I had no idea. I was completely clueless, but I love making music. I love playing my oboe. I love the sensation of it. And that just me getting better at the craft of it kept me engaged more so than the culture of it, which was distancing. I didn't really connect with that much, but I connected with yeah. the making of the music, the sounds, like making it with other people, no matter who mm-hmm. was the composer, like I vibe with this piece of that piece and I like playing it with other people. So that's what kept me hooked more than anything else, to be honest. Yeah, I think what you just said, that the culture can sometimes be distancing, Mm -hmm. is uh, very telling about how uh, musicians of color are sort of viewed in the classical music world. Mm -hmm. At the time of your appointment with the Nashville Symphony, you were the first tenured Black principal oboist in a major American symphony orchestra, although not the first person to hold a job and then not receive tenure. There there had been a few other oboists before you, I believe. Yes. Yeah, I always made that very, very clear that I wasn't the first African-American to be principal oboe of a major uh, symphony organization or be on trial or the sub or one year, whatever. I'm I'm not the first one to do that. I'm the first one to have tenure, mm-hmm. which that speaks a lot, right? That That's a whole unpacking of that, right? Yeah. The, the rights and permanence. Yes. Being <laughs> someone who could be in the organization and be a part of the shift of the voice that helps CBAs move in a different way or administration move in a different way. You know, that's how, and working with the union, all these Mm -hmm. things that go together, right? That's a completely different seat at the table. So yeah, I'm the first one to have tenure. And I state that not as in like, I mean, people say that's a great accomplishment, but at the same time, I think it's a a great uh, travesty that it's, it's, I'm the only one. And and that's that's a very sad thing because I would say that especially Black American people who've been descendants of slaves in this country, which my lineage comes from, uh, or known as freedmen in this country, emancipated from slavery in this country, who've been large contributors to the art space here, but it's not to have any prominent positions mm-hmm. as far as oboe is concerned or many in woodwind sections throughout the existence of us being here during the inception of all these American orchestras speaks to a large disparity of us being ignored uh, as far as our contributions and also our existence. For me, I use it as a pivot point for conversation to educate and to help uh, try to move things in the right direction that this isn't a statement that needs to be made anymore. The the fact that it's now well into the 21st century and that you're the first tenured Black principal oboist, of Mm -hmm. course, long overdue, how does that feel now, several years and a few cultural shifts into the job compared to the day that you were appointed? You know, what's really, really interesting is um, there's an observation that I say to people, it's like, 
I don't know if I feel any differently. I primarily like to do it because I love the music. I love playing music. And I, as people know, I'm, I'm a huge advocate for Black composers and other composers who are underrepresented. I've been doing that mm-hmm. for years before it was even popular. I would say the thing that feels different now is that when I used to speak earlier, it sounded so controversial. But now it's like super mainstream mm-hmm. that like you can really openly talk about disparities in orchestras or the foundation of orchestras or disparities in repertoire. When I was beating the drum before I had a job, it really put a target on my back in a lot of ways. But one thing I learned was I was gaining knowledge that's relevant to today that I didn't know was going to be as relevant so soon. So even though I was just on my own path and my own journey, learning the history, you know, of William Dawson or Florence Price or Undine Smith-Moore, Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, just really learn about these people and where they come from and their lineage and, and their background. Understanding how that correlates to the American political climate of those days. That, to me, today feels different because it's, it's something, it's a tool that can be used uh, rather than something that's just being talked about on eggshells like it was years ago. Yeah, That's the main difference that I feel is that the conversation is more in the forefront. I think the pendulum has swung and swinging and moving in a different direction. Mm -hmm. And I'm excited to see what it looks like 10 years from now. So that's what I'm primarily excited about that. I see the difference. But as far as me playing on the job, it's like, I mean, I've been in that space so long that I don't know. And I operate in many different spaces. The orchestra has always been a big feather in my cap, but it's never been my all of my existence. Mm -hmm. No. I, I always thought of myself as artist first, and then I've never deduced myself to titles. Titles are great, and they can be used as leverage, right, for approval or people to hear what you have to say, and you have to keep up your craft, right? But at the end of the day, the feeling of this time, I want it to stick. And if it doesn't stick in the symphony orchestra, I think people are being bold enough to start building their own things, <laughs> right? I haven't seen so many podcasts, so many different video creations, so many uh, innovative works until the last five years. And I think it's absolutely incredible because if the orchestras don't listen to the grassroots that's happening, it's a slowly sinking thing that will happen. It's inevitable. Change has to happen with any organization. No one is exempt from that. So that's why I say the feeling is different. I'm excited and inspired for all the new things that I see that's coming up and all the new different faces that I see. You know, what you said about seeing so many podcasts and so many people interested in dialogue, you've seen an exponential growth of that, particularly in the last two years, for obvious reasons with a global pandemic and everyone sort of stuck at home trying to figure out how to express themselves creatively and to get all of that information and all of this emotion that's been swirling around in their heads out into the public sphere. Um, So I think that paradoxically, was a really major cultural shift for getting people to be open enough to talk about these kind of issues. Right. And I'm so glad that you mentioned uh, Dawson. I I actually just this past February played the Dawson Symphony, and I used the bass clarinet that was used in the second performance of it in New York. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's cool. Which was an old German system bass clarinet because the bass clarinetist at the time was using a German system bass clarinet. And I remember sitting in the chair and thinking, 
I really hope this gets played more. It's such a yeah. gorgeous piece. The horn writing, all of the wind writing, the way the the melody sort of shifts seamlessly from one instrument to another and the, the lyricism and the vocal quality yeah. of, of the line. And I'm so glad that so many other orchestras in the last year or so have started stepping up to, to perform it. Absolutely. You made a good point. One of the things that I say to people is the reason why so much creativity happened is because the orchestras were quiet. Like orchestras mm -hmm. take up a lot. And I'm not saying, I'm not me speaking, to, I, when people think I'm talking about orchestra, I'm not speaking against orchestras. I'm just speaking like what's happening. Like uh, orchestras take up a lot of real estate in the conversation. It takes up a lot of real estate as far yes. as where change to happen. It takes up a lot of real estate of where a lot of people make their living. In, in in classical music, right? I'm not saying the majority of it's because it's so it's so few. Um, I would say maybe universities were probably the top one freelance and all those and the combination of those things. But things were quiet. So then other voices were able to be louder. So when other voices and those people who've been creative and had to figure out ways who have normally not been a part of the main system a whole archive and cachet of things to express that were new and fresh ideas that needed to be seen by people who needed to see them. So once the bigger organizations are quiet, I always akin to the thing that did the Lift Every Voice project I did. And someone called me and said, you dropped water in a well that was dry. In other words, there's a need for that to be seen. Yes. And because that needs to be seen and everyone's at home on a phone or on a television or on a computer or on an iPad, I can go straight to them. Yeah. Right. There is no barrier of how do I dress? What do I need to put on? Can I clap, please? Why are people coughing in between the movements? You know, there isn't this formality that needs to happen. And I can reach them with art and music through a, a message that connects with them culturally and sonically. So. And I think this isn't going anywhere. It's not, yeah. the shift has happened. The future is now. And it's only going to grow. And I tell people, Zoom, this form right here is in the Atari stage right now. Like, we're not even yeah. at the Nintendo 64 with this thing. <laughs> you know, so like, yeah, the way we're going to be able to reach people, and this is why I make this point very strongly, in conservatory, I have lovely teachers, amazing teachers. One of my teachers, still my mentor to this day, love her to death. They were innovators in their time, right? And now the conservatory model that we've gone to because it was so job oriented, right? You learn what you need to learn to be employed, which is valid because you got to feed yourself with your art. But at the end of the day, that skill set will be aid. And when that age skill set, not saying the playing of the instrument, the excellence of something. Excellence will never be aged. But I'm saying the skill set of me playing just a set amount of repertoire, expecting a certain amount of thing, and you put 100 people who think very similarly in that way to create a collecting bargain agreement to make that, it's going to be turning a Titanic in a swimming pool to change that. So when you have new things that come up, and the advantage of that is people who have not been necessarily been in that space yeah. had to create anyways. So that's why you're seeing so many diverse spaces in an innovative space, because you have to innovate to survive with your craft. 
So what people do is they go to things that they can reach their audience with because me playing, just me by myself, playing on a stage isn't going to shift the culture. But if I go straight to people in a broader sense, say the internet or whatever else mediums that are going to be created, that's a much different thing. So that's why I see what you were talking about, the shift, right? That's why I see the shift really happening. It may not just happen. Maybe some orchestras will, but I'm not sure that that's going to be the number one place where shifts are going to happen. So let's talk about these organizations that take up such a large amount of the pie, these orchestras. Um, unfortunately, you know, even with the number of exceptionally talented performers of color in North America, the orchestra, and very specifically, uh, very pointedly, the woodwind section remains one of the least diverse corners of the classical music world, just across the board. Obviously, this implementation of the screened audition system uh, in the mid 20th century with the carpet was meant to correct for gender bias. And to some extent that has happened, but it has not yet course corrected for racial biases with the same results. Mm. Um, there's obviously a lot to unpack in auditions and how this culture of the audition and the screen and the debate on whether or not the screen helps or hinders performers of color. You know, there's obviously a lot to unpack here, including ways that management and audition committees with their own personal biases can sort of force a result through trials and subsequent no hires right. or by the buzzword of there were no qualified candidates of color. But it's 2022. Why is this still the case? OK, I can I can give you a very simple answer. Uh, the screen audition is a myth. There weren't any fully screened auditions. The, the Met had fully screened auditions, which means they had a screen the whole entire time. They were incentivized or advised strongly to hire. So there were, I don't think there's even been a situation where the Mets come to a no hire in the last probably 50 years. I think maybe once or twice, something like that. But <clears throat> someone can correct me if I'm wrong. Friends in the Met can correct me if I'm wrong. But also, uh, there's no talking on the committee. You just vote. Other thing is, is that the music director also gets one vote, just like everybody else gets one vote. So it's a democratic process. And the Met by far has hired more people of color in that institution than any other institution that I've seen. Now, if you're talking about other orchestras, there is the process at any point when the screen comes down, it violates the process. It's like this. This is their screen process. They're looking between their fingers. Mm -hmm. It's not a... Uh, when people talk about the screen came up in the 70s, yeah. that's, and I know this is a harsh analogy that I use, but it's like talking about a fair democracy during Jim Crow that didn't exist. That's a weird paradigm or, or a way to frame the conversation, right? So if I have to frame the conversation in honesty, we have to frame with auditions have mm -hmm. never been screened. Never. They've, the screen has always come down. And that also stops people from showing up. Also, if I were to, majority of orchestras, of people who are tenured in orchestras have been hired without a screen. The majority, we can say over 90% easily, have been hired without a screen or a trial peer process 
auto advanced yeah. or with them in mind to be hired or just flat out hired or appointed. So if I were to flip the seat, if each seat had mm -hmm. information under everyone's seat or under their name of how they get hired, you'd be shocked about the stories. If I were to go down every roster of every single orchestra and there was a short little synopsis yeah. of how they get hired, people be shocked at what the percentages are of who actually hired completely through a democratic, unbiased process. So I'm saying the whole thing has not has been having a bad faith argument when it comes to, you know, and I speak because I brought a black orchestral network. Well, we we mentioned this. Yeah. Speaking about in our open letter about this specific framing. Yeah. So I can say that's the answer is that it's never been a truly fair process. Yeah. So if the process was fair, then we could have a whole nother discussion. Then you could talk about pipeline and all this stuff, right? That people love to bring up. You just put instruments in kids' hands, there'll be more people in orchestras. No, if you have, why would I send kids into a process that's not fair? Doesn't make any sense. You got to fix your process in which people get employed. I can send as many people as I want. We're not supposed to flood and clog up the pipes until you deem who's good enough to be in there. And let me make this really clear, too. I make this statement a lot. Because someone has tenure doesn't mean that they've maintained the quality of their playing. Tenure is job security. It's not an indicator for you to be the arbiter of truth or necessarily that you are qualified still to play your job well. So what is the incentive for someone to keep up their skill set, whether that is in academia or whether that's in orchestras? Like the whole thing needs to, and this is why it becomes culturally irrelevant, right? So quickly, because it doesn't have to be incentivized to change. The only argument it has is for it to be preserved, that this music is good for you. So therefore, because it's so culturally rich and it should not change its presentation, the only thing we need to do is convince people that it's good for them. And when they come to this concert with this, that we've been doing it the same way for a hundred years, they know that it's great. But what if someone comes in and they say, you know what, this is incredibly boring. What do you say about it then? That their impression is uneducated or their attention span is, is, is short? Because I know a ton of people that binge watch Ozarks. <laughs> And that kept their attention for about 20, 30 hours. So, you know, I think I think one of the things that must happen is, is that the conversation needs to change. The data needs to be there because there's no true data on how this thing, that, like how many people showed up to auditions, how many people weren't tenure, how many people left the business, how many people came through conservatory, how well-rounded was their, was their education? Because this is the thing that creates CBAs. Mm -hmm. If the orchestra is not incentivized to make it a fair system, that then the training has to be right for the people who go in there. You'll start training people differently to get in there. And then the CBAs will be different, right? And the minds that go in there will create a completely different thing that's fair for everyone. But that's not happening because it works for certain people. And if it works for certain people, they think that it's actually fair. But because it worked for you doesn't mean it's necessarily fair. And, you know, going back to the assessment that there has never been a fair audition. There has never been a truly screened audition. Right. We can also take that a step further back and talk right. about the resume round and how many people might have been left through the cracks because of a name on a resume, which we know happens. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, for sure. hundred percent. I mean, and when people say, oh, this resume doesn't meet our requirements or our qualifications, what are those? Like, are those in your CVA? 
what do you specifically need to have on your resume? Because I've been in rooms where people look at resumes and they start talking about the person. You don't even to talk about the person. Mm-hmm. And you're already talking about bias because you're trying to advocate for something, whether advocate for or disparage. There's only two ways this can go for the job, right? There's no in-between. So mm-hmm. the thing that I say with the resume round is let people show up who want to show up. You know, let them play. And then have it completely blind, no talking. Because once you start talking, there's always a bully that arises that tries to undermine the conviction of other listeners. That's just a natural thing. People want to say that my opinion is the one that needs to be heard. For what? My ears, we're in the same organization. And I see the campaign is the audition. Yeah, It's like a president. Once they campaign, they campaign. You go into the voter booth, you vote, and then we all watch the results on, on TV and cross our fingers. Right. Yeah. So that's what has to happen in audition. You put in your vote. The person is campaign. We'll see who wins on to the next audition. I should at this point mention that one of the top tier period instrument orchestras in the U.S. Uh, just held two auditions the past season, screened for all rounds. And in both cases, the winner was a musician of color. Wow. In the early music world, um, largely because of the type of people who sort of get drawn to early music being on the fringes of mainstream classical music to begin with, we are starting to see a very slow shift and evidence that various education initiatives that remove the financial barriers Mm. from an education in early music are slowly beginning to work. You know, we always talk about access to education and if we just put instruments in kids' hands, the the talent will be there. But in the historical performance world in the U.S., POC, woodwind, and brass performers are incredibly rare. And, you know, obviously access to period instruments and instruction is a barrier to many people of all backgrounds who want to become involved in this field. How many people are there out there who are going to teach 18th century basset horn in every city, you know, mm-hmm. generally next next to none. Um, hi. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, 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 historically, it, it's been much the same for musicians of color in the general classical music world. So this lack of diversity as a lack of equity of experience perpetuates itself, but on a macro level in the early music world. Mm-hmm. Should one argue that the responsible has to fall on individual orchestras and ensembles to nurture young performers of color? Or do we need a more centralized approach akin to what Sphinx and Chineke are doing, where they take that responsibility away from the larger groups and create exposure for themselves? That's a really good question. Mm -hmm. I work a lot with Sphinx. Weston Sprott and I co-created the SOPA audition competition. And over 70 orchestras partnered with it. People got one years out of this. SOPA also, uh, and NAS, the National Auditions Alliance support, they fund people to go to auditions, pay for people's travel to things, to sub, and it's, it's changed people's lives in a lot of ways. It's difficult, right? So it can be both and, I think. Yeah. They can be centralized and they can be orchestras. Where orchestras prioritize things is how their CBA is prioritized, and that prioritization goes with their budget. So where you put your money is where your prioritization is. Now, all these people who said they're making a commitment to hire different people in their, in their orchestras, 
right? Where is the funding that you're seeking to help also incentivize and also support people to come there? That's another issue. Of course, there are broader issues that are much larger than non-for-profit organizations that are bigger structural societal issues, Mm -hmm. why this is here in the first place, right? So the, uh, the fact that we can assume and properly assume at times, which is not great, but properly assume that many people now, I'll speak from my background, that many Black people in this space don't have the funds to be able to pursue this in the same way that a lot of my white colleagues are. That's a huge uh, societal issue that has to be tackled. But at the same time, what are organizations doing, you know, to ensure that people, I know people that were in conservatory that couldn't even afford a train ticket to get home in New York, had to walk sometimes. Yeah. So if you're at somewhere like Juilliard, you know, I'm not putting Juilliard blast or nothing like that. But the point that I'm making is, is that if you had an institution like that, there should be funds to help. If someone has that talent, money should not be a barrier mm-hmm. to them getting to where they need to go. Right. And I was talking to one of my mentors about this. It's the idea of scholarships. Like, let's really think about that. Now, thank goodness I had a full ride to Juilliard, but uh, because there's no way my family been able to afford that in a million years. Yeah. What I look at it as is should scholarships only be this merit-based, you played the best audition thing, but your family can pay your tuition 10 times over, you know, or you have two instruments and you live in, you know, in Midtown and you're just having a good time in New York and audition isn't for survival for you, it's for sport. Mm -hmm. It's a badge that you have because you've had the best things all the time. I'm not saying that people shouldn't be rewarded for their hard work, but should it be money? Right. Should it be money in an educational space? Can there be other awards that someone get that they can use that as a cachet on their resume because of their performance? But the the actual money goes to those who cannot pay for it. Because what also happens is, is that not only can you not pay for it, yeah. you go in tons of debt, and then you have to audition. Then you're gambling at that point, right? Yeah. Because you don't really have the money to really get out there and do it. You got to take out loans and the pressure of life also creeps in on creativity. So it makes it really difficult to be able to compete against those who can comfortably get a hotel, get something to eat. And if they fell at the audition, go have a drink with friends. You know, it's a much different existence. So I think a big part of that is, is institutions and uh, a centralized location of money should be there. But at the same time, I question the merits of scholarship and how that should be dispersed because so much of the money just goes to the performer rather than the person who needs it. And I mean, you know, that is the thing. Um, auditions are so expensive these days. Not only do you have to fund your travel to get out there and book a hotel potentially for multiple days at a time, depending on how long the audition is. Or if you make it past the first round or the the semifinals, the finals might be a couple weeks later when the music director is in town again. And then you just have to fly back out to somewhere for a job that in the end may not even pay 
enough of your your living expenses to truly mean that you can relocate to the the place where right. the job is. Yeah. And that that's, you know, one of the other things. Obviously, you know, wages have sort of stagnated over the past decade or so. There hasn't really been a lot of movement there, but the cost of right. living just keeps getting uh, higher and higher in most of the the cities in the country. Right. That's a very real thing. Like what is my incentive to go there? You know, my wife, she's a physician. And, you know, they go to school and they have something guaranteed at the end of getting an MD, mm-hmm. right? What are the off ramps that at least gets us in the realm of making decent money? And this is how the audition system has affected the way people play. So it's affected literally the sounds that people create into this very homogenous thing, mm-hmm. simply because you're thinking at the end of the day, these jobs don't come around so often the rate of attrition is so extremely low right which then causes friction when the conversation of hiring you know diverse faces into the orchestra comes about because there aren't that many jobs all this friction comes into play uh and then you have to sit there and learn the same symphonies because the orchestra isn't changing their program And that's also the pieces that the people on the committee are going to know. So it's one big thing that, like I said, it takes a long time to turn. But that's why I said, is that the space where the change actually happens? And is that the space where a lot of new philanthropy people go? I don't have a crystal ball, but I do wonder for orchestras that will shift, I'm sure they'd be great and in the forefront of things. But I don't know how global that will be in the long run in the next 10, 15 years. So with all of this in mind, what advice might you have for period instrument orchestras in North America that are going to start holding screened auditions in the next couple of years? I know, uh, for example, that there is an oboe audition uh, that will be happening in one of the San Francisco period orchestras in the next couple of months. What advice do you have for either orchestras in general or for the individuals on the committees who are uh, bound by the regulations of whatever the CBA says? Mm -hmm. I would say, uh, very simple, hold a fair screen, no discussion, go in with intention to hire. Go with the mindset of hiring. The person has their whole probationary period to figure out where they fit in or not right and have a fair tenure process where everything is above board where people they're able to get comments they know where the comments are coming from everything that you say about that player has to be documented and signed with your name on it because it's been proven that people write more more things like a youtube comment section when they're behind an alias Mm. name but if i put my name on it and i have a paper trail of five years I me mean, saying disparaging things about several candidates, guess what? That shows up in my union file. So I'm saying, am, am I actually being fair, right? Because there needs to be moments of accountability. It can't be a hazing process. When a new person comes into the orchestra, they're changing the dynamic of that ensemble. Some things they assimilate, some things they innovate. You have to figure out both. What's that balance? of this is a new group when there's a new link. It's not someone that needs to just learn the ropes because once they learn the ropes, your ropes, 
may be tired and dated. So the thing that I'm saying is, is hold a fair audition, screen it, don't speak, vote all the way through the end, listen to the playing. Let the playing speak to you. And if your colleague next to you doesn't have your same taste, so what? That's the cost of being in the group. So you vote, whoever has the most votes gets the job. They get the job and then you have a meeting about how you run a fair tenure process where your committee will be fair. And this person who's in the probationary period has rights to speak without feeling like they have no rights in an ensemble that they have to show up to every day. Mm -hmm. So accountability above board is going to have the whole thing be a much more positive experience for everyone. Because how someone's hired can adversely affect the next 10 to 15 years sometimes in someone's career. Yeah. So I think this is all really great advice for all of those organizations that are going to be holding auditions in in the next few seasons. And I hope some of this trickles down and, and sort of inspires the people on the hiring committees and the orchestra management teams to, to really take this information to heart. Right. Um, let's pivot now to Matthew Morrison's article, Race, Black Sound, and the Remaking of Musical Discourse. Um, this provides a very clear analysis of the development of what Morrison calls black sound in relation to visual, theatrical, and musical depictions of race and the othering of Black Americans both before and after the Civil War. One of the consequences was this idea that the idea of whiteness was defined by what it wasn't on an exclusionary level. And yet Black musicians and performers frequently had this direct impact on the popular musical tastes and aesthetics of white America while receiving uh, little to none of the credit or rights to their own creations. And it's really only recently that this conscious exclusion has begun to be unpacked by musicologists and sociologists which is to say nothing about the commercialization world, which is a whole other thing that that is yeah. maybe another episode to, to get into. Yeah, like that meta rapper who went on Capitol Records and got... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. In the same way, uh, American music as a genre or uh, as a, a musical culture has frequently been defined by what it isn't, which trickles down to the performer's who people deem should be allowed to perform in American ensembles. Do you think there will ever be a point where seeing a person of color in a leadership position in an American orchestra won't be shocking to the general public anymore? Hmm. The reason I'm taking a little bit of time for that, because maybe, I I don't know, it depends on where they are, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I guess, I mean, if you're in New York City, maybe different. If you in... Alabama may be different. Mm-hmm. If you're in California, it may be different. If you're in Arizona, it may be different. If you're in Idaho, it may be different. Yeah. So the point that I'm making is, is I, I want to frame it a little bit. Um, I always ask the question, especially for like the orchestras that I'm a part of is, are we an American orchestra or are we a European approximate? Like, which one is it? Because you got to define what it is. Mm-hmm. Are we the new... Vienna Philharmonic of whatever city and state, right? Are we the new Berlin of such and such Kansas? You get what I'm saying? Like, Mm -hmm. what is this? 
right? Because you say you're an American orchestra, you have American Federation of Musicians, you have your American unions, you do fighting for your American pension, and then you say you're an American orchestra. So what is your American cultural export? Like, what is the export that you export out that's so American, right? When you the highest level that you achieve is going on a European tour. Yeah. And, you know, that's a whole nother discussion, layers and layers of other things that affect that. But the other thing I ask is, Dvorak was right when he came here, right? An immigrant was more affected by the American music than Americans themselves. Thing is, Americans will have to have a very serious conversation of why this is left out, because mm-hmm. you have to really think about this. And I, I, I'll come from this point of view, like I stated before. My family's been here at least 10 generations, the Underwood family here. Right. I come from people who were traded from West Africa to here, many tribes mixed into one that create this new thing called Black Americans. Right. So that's here in America. And William Grant still writes this called Song of a New Race, which is Second Symphony, is about just that story of am I really African? What am I? Negro Folk Symphony Dawson. Another thing where he goes over to West Africa and goes to different countries to piece it all together because African-Americans are many tribes mixed into one because of cultural breeding, all the stuff they did, brutal things they did through slavery to ensure that we could not communicate. So they crossbred many tribes that would never, ever have mixed mm-hmm. ever for hundreds of years into one thing called Black, right? So now you have this music and this culture that Harry T. Burley starts to write songs for, right? Concert songs. But these songs were already songs that were culture that was in the fields, that was in the houses, that was in the South, that was already made, that been it for 250 years, which then created a crazy boom in the American economy from cotton to tobacco, right? To saying people, I want to go over to Ellis Island to get into America because I want to live a dream. I'm going to take my bag and I'm going to move to Midwest. I'm going to take my bag and I'm going to move to New York. I'm going to take my bag and I'm going to move to the South. So my my European lineage can become white in America. But what happens is, is that people integrate it into a larger American culture that was already there. But that larger American culture, right, did not look like the average person who was migrating. So that causes a different conversation that needs to happen, right? So if I'm talking about Negro, so I'm not talking about blues, jazz, gospel, hip hop, yeah. R&B, bebop techno, you name it, house, every rock and roll, every single genre, right? And all these, and then Dawson uses Negro Folk Symphony, as in like uh, what uh, Nathaniel Dett said, he said, you know, the tunes that we have from our culture are the raw timber of our music that we can create into bigger elaborate works. That's all every other composer's ever done. That's what it is, what we do. So. If we were to historically contextualize what is an American orchestra, what is the American sound? Where does it come from? And then what is our cultural export? What does that look like? Gershwin is not made in a vacuum. Gershwin had to borrow from a culture to get his sound, right? He had to go hang out in Harlem to take that to the mainstream. He had to get it from brothers that had no names, that was out there playing jazz clubs, Mm -hmm. right? That migrated from the South. So, like, if I'm talking about American music and Gertrude's anchored in an immigrant story, which is there's no shape that that's a different story. 
Yeah. But if I'm talking about if I'm talking about what the roots of it comes from, from what's mainstream and promoted today, as far as the culture of music today, you cannot go through an American orchestra without mentioning black culture. It's literally impossible. If you talk about American music, otherwise call it the new Vienna, the new Berlin, the new London Symphony of Alabama. Yeah. Like call it that because that's the music you're playing. And don't call it an American orchestra because there's nothing wrong with it being European structure in an American place. I have no problem with that, but call it what it is. Don't say it's an American orchestra because it's not. Well, we play different. How? I get it. Our ambitions may be different. The way we create sound is different, but that's also influenced by the sounds you're around right here in America. Yeah. So like, and where does that sound come from? Right? So like, and then people would say to me, you know, my family got here in the 30s. Well, my family here since the 1600s. So like, you're then the person is anchoring themselves again in a European story or a story that's outside of America, then saying it's the American sound. If I were to migrate to a different place and I created this and I helped contribute to that sound that's different. But if I'm talking about, I have to pay homage to the people who are already there from the culture that I'm benefiting from that's being promoted in the land that I'm in. And there's nothing wrong with that because that's how culture is. It all mixes. It, it doesn't happen in a vacuum. It all cross pollinates. But like, if I'm going to call it American and you deliberately ignore black people, that's a travesty. I think yeah. that is completely wrong. And that's the point that I really want to make is that we are deliberately ignored in this field when we've had immense contributions from the birth of this culture and this country and for American orchestra to have an endowment in the first place to be able to have jobs here. Yeah. So it's a multi-layered thing. So if we were to address all of the layers, it won't be so shocking because I'm an American. Yes, I'm a Black American, but I'm in fact an American. So if an American's running an American orchestra that happens to look American, like what is the problem? So I think it's all about the frame and how people see what they think American is or what they presume it to be or assume it to be, then it won't be so shocking because it's the miseducation of people and their perception of what they deem to be American. Well, so let's talk about the visual aspect uh, of classical music. Um, your film, A Tale mm -hmm. of Two Tales, which I highly recommend that everybody check out, uh, very much encapsulates what I think a lot of performers of color feel navigating the classical music landscape just is the narrative of what a performer should look like being deconstructed through the film. But the repertoire you choose and your insistence on expanding the canon uh, to include composers of color is, I think, exactly what the field needs, both in mainstream modern classical music and in the historical performance world. Um, and I should note that the, the musical section at the beginning of the film is Telemann. Telemann, yeah. How do we as performers that are tied to larger organizations uh, effect change on what is canonized in our repertoire going forward when management still has so much of a say over what they think should be performed? Obviously, in the, the early music movement, there are certain limitations, but there is no reason that the, the late romantic music of Samuel Coleridge Taylor, for example, shouldn't be approached with the same care and the same focus and attention to detail as the music of his white contemporaries, which are frequently being performed uh, by period instrument orchestras on mm -hmm. late romantic instruments. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Just to give context so people know what we're talking about here. Yeah. Uh, it's a short film. It's at TitusUnderwood.com, or you can look up A Tale of Two Tales on YouTube and check it out. 
you know, I think it's one of my greatest works and there's more work to come for sure. But I, the reason why I chose Telemann because I am both in those spaces. I play Telemann and I also play this uh, innovation preservation, right? Both can coexist. I also grew up loving the music of Telemann. That's a part of me. All that Brahms, all that stuff is a part of me. Tchaikovsky is a part of me. All of it is a part of me. And also this present, like you said, presentation. I would say one thing about the presentation is this. Every single professional destination has a uniform. Mm -hmm. Every single day, when you see a child and they say, hey, you want to be a fireman? They want to get a little fire truck and they see the uniform and, you know, career day and they have to put on the uniform. That's a signal to something, a destination to a place, an accomplishment, right? When the when the person gets drafted to the NBA, they yeah. hold up a jersey. Say, I made it. You know, they don't go and dunk a basketball. They hold up a jersey. For me, the tails represented a cultural destination of excellence of what it is to be in an orchestra, right, for a living. But if I were to think of tales from a cultural standpoint that I felt was embodying what I thought would be a destination, it would be the second tales. Mm -hmm. It would be, this is how I present myself as a professional to inspire other kids, to aspire to have that as their destination as well, to culturally affirm themselves and where they come from. And although orchestras say they're not making a statement with their dress, clothing is always a statement. Yeah. It's never not a statement. So I want to embody that not only because I took the W.E.B. Du Bois quote, you know, uh, the double consciousness. I wanted to talk about and that's why shout out to T.T. Lyo, who was my collaborator in helping me bring this to life. I really wanted to to capture like morning to night as this birth and rebirth thing that happens. There's an arc that happens throughout it. There's also a clothing change of me having a conversation with myself about should a simulation be the only form of artistry I should have? Then I'm the, one of the best karaoke artists ever then. Like, <laughs> that's not what I aspired to be. So I wanted it to be completely uninhibited voice that I had speaking from my cultural experience to say, this is what I deem excellence. This is what I deem my culture. This is what I this is the soundtrack of the sounds that I want to share with the world. This is what I connect with. And this is what I want people to take time to learn. Just like the same way I learned Telemann or Bach. People taught me how to play that stuff. People taught me how to play Mozart and nuance it through this oral tradition that we have and treatises that we read and books and history books. But as someone sat and give you the historical, political and everything context in which this music was created. And I tell people, how can I exist? How can I go through a whole musical education and nothing ever mentions the transatlantic slave trade? Yeah. How can you talk about Beethoven's Ninth? And the song Jim Crow, which was a minstrel show, was created literally three years before Beethoven's Ninth debut. They were coexisting at the same exact time, mm -hmm. which is fascinating that Mozart, you know, Beethoven's Third, all this stuff. I think Beethoven's Third is about 17, I can't think, with, with, no, 1803. 
Yeah, I'll take the back. 1803, Beethoven's third. 1803 to 1806, in the creation of this thing, right? You're at the height of this trade. And that's never, ever, ever, ever mentioned as if there's no contribution of culture. So how can I be deemed as a viable human being of cultural um, importance if I'm never mentioned, mentioned as any sort of contributor to this great art that I participate in? So that's why you should be thankful that you're part of it, right? See, that that's the framing that's put apart if I'm never seen. So if I put in context, if I'm talking about the New York Philharmonic was established in the Philadelphia Orchestra is established in, what is happening in Philadelphia and New York at that time? Like, what is happening in these states when all these orchestras are happening? Why do they have the liberties to create an orchestra in the first place? Yeah. And why are my people not do not are drinking at colored fountains, right? While this all is going on, hose down in the street, 1919, red summer, mass murders going all across the country because of, of massacres going on, Ku Klux Klan. None of this is mentioned. And I'm just sitting there in conservatory like, this is how you nuance this. And that also causes this interest, right? So if I never see myself in any sort of way, or every time I mention myself, it's deemed controversial. Mm-hmm. That is an issue. So that's why I said this whole thing is switching because those organizations were quiet and other people were talking amongst each other and conversations were happening and things and people that were invisible came very visible that had already been there and serving in their communities and had their colleagues that knew that they were putting in the work. But then these mediums started to really equalize everything. So then I was like, you know what? I've never seen a principal player put out a short film, but I love doing film. Uh, the voice. I did. We are Nashville. Me and my team got an Emmys for that. We, I've been putting in the work for this for years. So now that the stage is set, it's time to say something. Disguise has always been integral to our survival, but are both sides me? Both tales to tell. And that also signals others to stand up and say, you know what? I felt the same way. Mm-hmm. I felt that way too. Like when I showed up in the classroom and I wanted to say something, I wanted to say something, but I felt like I couldn't say anything because I'm thinking three, four years ahead, I might meet a colleague that's on a committee that I need to play for. I need to just shut up and get my tenure. My tales to tell. My tales to show. You know, so that's how this is created. But I want to say, you know what? I have my tenure. <laughs> I put in my dues. Stand up and be counted. So it was a cathartic thing for me as well. 
to really say, you know what, I'm going to really step into this thing. And this is the beginning of something. Not saying that people say, so why are you still playing an orchestra? Because I like playing an orchestra. But I also know that things need to change. So like everything doesn't change overnight. And also it can change quickly if you have enough, a big enough critical mass of people speaking up. So check out the film and tell the two tales, people. <laughs>